We'll go ahead and open your Bible to the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a black hardback around you. Uh, the book of Isaiah is on page 530, but we are going to be in chapter 23. Chapter 23. And uh, last week we examined chapter 22, again, as we've been moving through this book. And uh, we heard about the, the downfall of all of those who put their trust in themselves or they put their trust in their own self-sufficiency. And uh, this great sin of self-sufficiency led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the city. It led to the destruction of Shebna, the treasure. It led to the downfall of Eliakim's family. And so what we saw from chapter 22 was this um, warning, really, to even us today to not put our trust in our own self-sufficiency, but to trust in the Lord. And today, Isaiah is going to show us here in this chapter that there's another great sin that we should be cautious of, careful of, because it can also lead to a person's destruction, and also the destruction of a culture and a city. And what we have here is the love for wealth, the love for things, in which we will call materialism, materialism. So the title of this morning's message, I've, I've given it the affliction of affluence, affluence. Now, you probably know what affluency is, right? Like that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in today's culture of, of how affluent a person is, and this is what we have in this chapter. We use the word need for the most ridiculous of things, don't we? I mean, your kids do at least, right? So my, my mom tells a story of whenever my sister, which is three years older than me, when she was about two or three years old, they would go to the store and um, my sister would say, I want this, I want this, I want this. And my mom would respond with, we don't need that, we don't need that, we don't need that. To which my sister is a lot smarter than me. And she then figured out, okay, I need to change a word. So I don't want that anymore. I need that. I need that. I need that. To which she still got told, no, no, no. So it, it was a simple change of words, but it really didn't change the heart, did it? It was still the same thing. It was still a desire that was there of, I want that, but now I'm just going to act like I need that. And we do this all the time, don't we? We, we? we pray, we talk, we act as though I need something when it's really I, I want something. And there's a big difference between those two things, and especially as you become a parent, you realize that, that, oh no, you don't want that or need that. Both of those ideas are, are wrong for you. You don't even know what you want uh, as a child, right? And even as adults, we don't even know what we want or really what we need. So what do we really need? What do you really need? Well, I think we would all agree that there's there's some physiological things that we all need, and there's, again, things out there that you can find of, of studies of show what, what does a person actually physically need. There are five basic phys physiological needs that everybody has, and they are simply air, that's pretty important, shelter, water, food, and sleep. Now, one of those five needs, maybe a couple of those, you don't need right now, so just sleep, you don't need that, okay? Uh, if you need a drink, you can go figure that out. 
Uh, if you have food, I would save that for later. Like you have air in this room, there's shelter. So we, we have some of those already covered. Just uh, don't use that sleep one right now. Now, there, there are many other needs that people have. Now, those are the, the physical needs that we have, five basic things everybody has to have. If you don't have those, you will die. Like you don't have enough sleep, you will die. You don't have enough food, you'll die. Water, air, shelter, all those things. Now, in order for humans to really thrive and not just survive, there's other things that they need. Everybody has these other kinds of needs that help them really thrive in life, such as love and hope. Everybody needs those things. People need security and, and freedom. Like Those are things in which people need to really thrive. Now, all of the needs that people have... There is an overarching need that every single person on the planet needs. They must have. Anyone and everyone that has ever lived or ever will live, they all need the same thing, and that is God's sustaining grace. If they do not have that, they do not live, and they cannot thrive. Without God, there is nothing. We know this from the book of Genesis, right? Like we've been reading through Genesis. We've, we've heard this in chapter 1. In the beginning, God. So if God is not there, nothing is there. There is nothing without Him. So remove Him from your life and you will accomplish nothing. Nothing of any real significance or any, any, any real eternal significance. There is nothing there for you. So now maybe you think that that's a little strong out of the gate uh, for the sermon this morning, but I think this is so true that we need to understand. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. This is what Scripture tells us. Apart from Him, there is no pleasure for Him. Now, if God is the ultimate, if He is the preeminent, if He, if he is the most superior of all things throughout all of time, if He is the one that has created life and is sustaining life, then don't you think it wise for us to submit to Him and to please Him? This is what we should do. This is what everyone should do. Everyone has the same greatest need, and that is God. They need Him. You need Him. And you need to please Him. You need to honor Him. This is not only what you need to do, but what your neighbor needs to do. Your neighbor that doesn't believe in God, they need to honor God. But we find in this chapter that we'll look at in chapter 23 that there are two cities, two places that are not far from each other that have abandoned the concept of pleasing God. They've abandoned that. They, they don't live this way. And what they have adopted or what they have set as their life's intention is to please themselves, is to figure out ways and avenues and things that will give them the most satisfaction and pleasure and comfort and affluency in this world. And they've done this through these earthly things. So let's jump in here to these 18 verses that we have out of chapter 23 of Isaiah and see what we have for us this morning. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shior, the harvest of the Nile, 
You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre and bestower of the crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea, and he has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people that was not Assyria, destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers, they stripped her palaces bare, and they made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for, you, for your stronghold is lay waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Like the days of one king, at the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of the 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. These two places that are mentioned here, maybe you are familiar, maybe you're not familiar with, with where they are. If you have a Bible with some maps in the back, you can go there and find these two on the Mediterranean Sea to the north of Israel, just to the north. Uh, Tyre is an island off of the coast, and Sidon is just up the coastline there to the north. And these two places, they were known and admired for their wealth and for their trade. They were really an economic center for that whole region. And a lot of things flowed through that port, those two port cities. And Tyre, they are used here by, by God and by Isaiah as representation of wealth and commerce. Now, they're used... Here as another representation of trying to live without God, of living as though they're really atheistic or agnostic in, in how they have organized their life. Their self-reliance was upon the fortifications, not so much like Jerusalem, like look at these walls, look at the water, look at the weapons we have, but look at the finances we have. Look at how much money we have. And so their fortification was their wealth, their affluence. And because of this, because of being so wealthy, they were enthralled with things, consumed with things. You could say they were consumed with consumerism. The affluence that they had made them hungry, hungry for more and more and more, but they were not hungry for God. And this is the great sin. This led them to believe that they really didn't need God 
And they didn't need God because they had all this stuff. They had all these things. And, and they, they stacked up and piled up these things. And this, this must have meant that they were doing okay. They were doing right. That, that they weren't doing wrong. Because look at all the money they had. Look at all the stuff that they had. Look at all the things that were proving that they were right with God. Right? Wrong. Please write this down. Wealth is not an indicator Wealth is not an indicator of God's approval or blessing. Just because you have doesn't mean you have God. Wealth is not an indicator of God's approval. And also what is true is that poverty is not an indicator of God's condemnation. And this is one of the reasons why the so-called prosperity gospel that is promoted today all across the world, unfortunately, is no gospel at all because it promotes this, this kind of thinking of Tyre and Sidon where it promotes that, well, God's people will always be healthy and wealthy because of their faith in God. And if you have neither one of those, if you're struggling with one of those, that means your faith is just not very good and God doesn't like you very much. You must be on the wrong side of God if you don't have health, if you don't have wealth. You must not have his approval. You must not have his blessing if you don't have these things. That teaching is an abomination to God. It is not true. Why will these places fall, even though they were, they were bulwarks in the region of economic source? They were prideful, and their pride made them delusional about their condition, their condition both physically and spiritually. I think this happens a lot to us where we really think that we're completely okay because of what we have. Look how, how good God's been to me. And, and we, even, we even say that in conversation. Well, I've really been blessed. But again, this is not an indicator of God's approval or blessing just because you have or you don't have. We see, we see this idea here describing the first eight verses of this chapter, this idea of Tyre and Sodom, how, how they have thought and acted and lived a lifestyle where we don't really need God. Look at how much stuff we have. And, and this, this back and forth, as Isaiah has recorded for us, of, of their strongholds and, and how they, they see the sea as really their God, bringing in their wealth, bringing in their prosperity. And it's not God blessing them at all. Now, in verse 13, we are told through the prophet that the downfall of Tyre and Sidon, humanly speaking, is going to be caused by Babylon or the Chaldeans, as they're referred to in verse 13. So the Chaldeans just equate that to the Babylonians. So it seems to be as though the Babylonians are going to cause this, that this is going to be the reason why they fall. But in verses 8 and 9, along with verses 11 and 12, we, we learn something else. It reveals to us that there's someone else behind and above all of this happening. Who is it? Look at verse 8. It asks the question, who has purposed this? Verse 9 answers, the Lord of, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. And then look at verse 11. He, meaning God, stretched out his hand over the sea, and he has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command. And then verse 12 and he said, and God said. So who is behind all of this? It is the Lord. 
So from the human perspective, Babylon is the cause of the fall of Tyre, of the fall of Sidon. Babylon is the one that is bringing this pain and suffering to them, but the scriptures have a different perspective. In Christian, we should have a different perspective of how things work. We see from scripture that it is the Lord of hosts who has caused all of this to happen. It is his providential plan, his purpose, his execution of the details that bring about these events exactly the way in which he wanted them to happen. And so this great enemy, this great enemy of God is not the devil, even though he definitely is an enemy of God. The great enemy that I want us to focus on this morning is human pride. And this is really what will lead, uh, what will uh, fluency lead to. It will lead us to a place of pride. And this is evidence here in these two places. Their pride was evident in their materialistic lifestyles. Their consumerism that had consumed them was really a source, it was from their pride. Now, even though this was written about 2,700 years ago when these words were recorded, as maybe you've noticed, humanity hasn't changed. Things haven't changed. Today, our nation, our world, has become increasingly driven by materialism. One author has said this. He said, materialism is a drug. Materialism is the opioid of the people. It pacifies society on a mass scale, causing millions to ignore the God-sized hole in our souls for the latest trend that can get carried around in a mall bag. And I think that was written probably before malls, you know, had kind of closed. Like, things have even changed since that was even written because of, I think, the driving force of materialism and Amazon. Now... This is what materialism does to people. It makes them believe that they have all that they need. I have everything that I need. Why would I need God? Why, do I, why would I need anything else? I have all of these things. But also what it does to them in their mind is it keeps them wanting more things, never filling the hole in which they feel. It is being consumed by consuming Striving to get more and more and feeling less and less connected to God. And also what it does, it also makes you feel less and less conviction about sin. Christians should not be known as materialistic people. We should not be. Let me, let me give you a passage to help you with this. If you didn't amen that, you will after this. If not... We should talk. Hebrews 10, 34 through 36. Listen to what the writer has to say here. For you, meaning Christians, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So what, what is the author saying here? He's telling us that these Christians had their property taken from them, plundered, 
like some pirate comes in and plunders their property from them, and they accepted it with rioting and fire and guns and anger. No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? How do they respond to the plundering of their property? With joy. Joy. Thank you. (laughs) With joy. They lost their earthly goods And he's saying they didn't weep, they didn't wail over the loss. They accepted the plundering of their property with joy. Which means that their identity and their satisfaction was not in their possessions. It was not in their stuff. Who was it in? It was in God. It was in the promises of God that this life, this stuff, this is not all that there is. There's something bigger, greater, eternal. And this is where they had their focus. And so when this happened to them, this great suffering that happened to them, they didn't weep and wail. So let me ask you this question. Would your heart break if all of your earthly goods burnt to the ground right now? Like you go home from this gathering and you find there's nothing left. It's all gone. And not only is your house gone, but the land that it sits on, the government now claims is theirs. And you have nothing. Would you be thrown into a tailspin because you've lost all of these things? Or would you have the same response that these Christians did in Hebrews 10? Would you accept the plundering of your property with joy? You know, how we view something is how we will treat it. If you view something as the ultimate, you will treat it as the ultimate. If you treat it as worthless, you'll treat it as worthless. And, and this goes to relational things and also into your life with material things. How you view something is how you treat it. Now, maybe you have like the nice dishes that uh, whenever people come over, you use the nice dishes. But for your kids, you don't give them the nice dish, Right? Like you give them that that crusty old plastic plate that's been in the microwave too long. That's what you give them because you know it's going to happen. So you you understand, you know. Let me ask you this question in relation to your own personal materialism and consumerism. When was the last time that you decluttered or purged your collection? And you say, well, I, I don't collect things, Pastor. Oh, I bet you do. We all do. So I would ask you, I would challenge you, go home today. And if you have time, because some of you have a much larger collection than others and you don't want to admit it, but go home today and count how many pairs of pants you have, how many shoes you own, how, how, much, how many shirts do you have in your closet, how many different types of jewelry do you have, kids, how many toys do you have and own? Or maybe adults. How many toys do you own and have? We have a generational issue, yeah. Um, Whatever else that maybe you have collected and you have hoarded over time, go home and count those things and let those numbers speak for themselves about just maybe how materialistic you have become. Now, it it would be a very tempting thing for you to just dismiss this challenge and be like, well, that's dumb. 
I know that's a temptation because I think you already know the reality. And some of you will, will do what I've asked, but you will also find yourself being tempted as you sort through these things to then justify and reason away why you need those things. Now, you will find yourself in that justification mode comparing yourself to someone else's collection or closet. You're like, well, mine's not as big as that. That's not, mine's not as much as theirs. But this is not what you should do. The comparison game in which we all have a tendency to play, every time we do this, it never ends well for us. Unless we are comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that comparison always ends well because it will always lead you to a place of humility. You will be humbled before Christ. Now, with this, are things bad? No, not at all. Is having multiples of things bad? No. Is having really nice things bad? No. The Scriptures do not condemn things or even multiples of things. But it does quite clearly condemn the idolatry of things. This is very clear. And if your affluence is getting in the way of your relationship with God, then what do you think needs to happen in your life? If your affluency, your wealth, your consumerism, your materialism is getting in the way of your relationship with the Lord, what needs to happen? James writes in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, meaning you're enemies with Him? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So how do you know if you've become friends with the world? How do we, how do we know this? Well, I think James gets at this in the verses just before this, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where he talks about one's desires, one's attitude that is filled with, with coveting, and that people have developed this kind of heart. People want things, but they want them for the wrong reasons. I think this is James' definition of friendship with the world. It is a person who is prideful and self-centered. And their, their will is wanting other people's things so as to glorify themselves and satisfy themselves. This is why they want that. This is why they desire that. And James calls them adulterous people because they have become self-worshippers and not God worshipers. And we easily become self-worshippers with our purchasing power, don't we? And the, and the very simple way in which we can purchase things today, I mean, you don't even have to have a credit card on you, just your phone. It's so easy for us to buy things on impulse, thinking that maybe we have we have fulfilled something in us that it can never be fulfilled by things, but only by our Creator. And I think this is evidence of our self-worship. In 1 John, what Kurt read earlier for us this morning, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So do you have a practice? Is this, is this how your life would be described as always having a need of something else? You're always needing something else. As in what you currently have is never sufficient enough because a newer model has just came out. Like you just got your new iPhone 12 and you're like, you show your friends and you see my new iPhone, I just got my new iPhone and your friend goes, yeah, did you know they just came out with a 13? And you're like, what? Are you kidding? And then you talk to another friend they're like, well, you know, they actually have a 14 coming out next month. You're like, are you kidding me? And you feel this dissatisfaction in your soul because you don't have the newest thing. Where is that coming from? What is this showing you about your soul's desire and wants? I think what it's showing is the shallowness of your heart and the false identity in which you have been embracing thinking that things are what define you. I think what James and John are getting at are questions like these, questions of, are you suspicious of your desires? Do do your desires arise suspicion in your heart? Or another way to put this is, do you question why you want what you want? Do you question that? Oh, I saw that commercial. I, I, I want that. But then you convince yourself, like, no, I need that, right? Because you know, like, well, I don't really, I can't say that I want it and feel okay about myself, but I have, I have to need it. Do you question why you want what you want? We are in such danger spiritually in this country because we live in Tyre and Sidon. This is where we live. Americans make up 30% of the world's wealth. 30% of all the nations of the world, we make up 30% of the world's wealth. The median worldwide income on a yearly basis is less than $2,000 a year. Less than $2,000 a year. I didn't say month or week. Year. What can... Affluency get us? Well, let me take you to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 19, to an encounter that Jesus had. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible. The, the page is 774 in that black hardback. This is a familiar story to you. Likely, familiar story. Verses 16 through 22 is what we're going to look at. It says in verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is a really important question, isn't it? What what do I need to do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Referring to God. If you would enter life, keep, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, 
you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the question is, what is the lesson from this story? What is, what is the lesson for us here? Is it that this is a mandate from Jesus for someone to sell everything and live in poverty? Yes, if your wealth is destroying your relationship with God. If your wealth, your affluency is destroying the relationship that you can have or do have with God, yes. Yes. But the most important thing is not possessions in the story. Even though it ends with that, right? For he had great possessions. In our minds, usually mine anyways, gravitates to that last thing. Oh, well, it's because he's so wealthy. No, the problem was he didn't want the relationship, The problem that this young man had was not that he had tons and tons of stuff, but that he believed that those things had greater significance or value or worth than Jesus. That's the problem. The gratification that this man should have been finding in following Jesus, he couldn't trade. He couldn't trade for that because he he thought those things really did gratify him. This was the great sin in this man's life, not the things themselves. It was his desires and what he, what he wanted, and what he wanted he didn't question. What he really wanted was to maintain his lifestyle. He wanted to maintain his comfort level and then add Jesus to it. Do we not do the same thing? where we think that we can have the same comfort level, the same lifestyle, and not really have any real movement with that, and then just add Jesus to our life? Is this not something that we see all the time, where people, they they say that they want to follow Jesus, and then something hard comes their way, and, and then they trade Jesus for comfort. They trade Jesus for a lifestyle. They trade Jesus for for something else. And and the problem exists in their relationship with him. They really don't want the relationship. They just want the benefit of him. Just like the benefit from their new iPhone or from their their shopping spree online. I want to turn our attention kind of to the early church. And I want to ask a couple questions here about the early church. What did the early church have that helped facilitate a movement throughout the world? Like, what were the things in which they possessed? What buildings, what technologies did they have that made it possible for them to expand so quickly across the globe? I mean, they, they didn't have the printing press yet, right? Like, Gutenberg, he wasn't even there yet. They didn't have the printing press. They had none of the things in which we have today in the way of wealth or in the way of protections of religious liberties, but they accomplished what we only dream of most of the time. How did they do it? 
How did they accomplish these things? They didn't have the wealth. They didn't have the, the, the protections and the liberties in which we have. So how did they do it? Well, in the book of Acts, we learn that all were provided for. There was no need among them. What this then led to was their ability to stay on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there wasn't need among them, they could move quickly into responding to other needs and other things. Because the body wasn't hurting, they could then move the body forward for the good news of the gospel. And they were entrusted with that, just as we have been entrusted with that news. Now problems, as you read through Acts, you see that they crept into the church, and when people started to to be selfish and to focus on themselves, this is where things went wrong. They focused on what they could get out of this world instead of the mission. A great example of this is Ananias and Sapphira. Read that story, and you see what happens in, uh, with greedy people in the early church. Now, we still struggle with this in the modern church today. Not only do, do congregants across churches and denominations struggle with this and even act this way, but unfortunately there's leaders as well that are self-centered and focused on what they can get out of this world. One of the conversation pieces in which usually go into pastors meeting each other is always about attendance and, and about budgets. And so the question is basically like this. Of course, they wouldn't say it this way because it sounds ugly, is, well, how big is your church and how rich is your church? Like those, that's not really the way that it's worded, but that's really what they're asking. And these are just bad questions. These are bad questions. Because what good is a rich church with poor believers? What good is that? We can have millions in income. We can have millions in reserve. We can have thousands of people coming. But if those people aren't making disciples of Jesus Christ, what good is that? What are we doing? It's all a waste. What is our greatest need? To have a relationship with the Lord. What is everyone else's greatest need? To have a relationship with the Lord. And if we're not doing that, if we're not promoting that, if we're not pushing to that, then all of it's a waste. If they are all poor in faith and poor in obedience, then we have created a pit and not a palace. So we can have a, just an amazing structure and technologies and all kinds of things, but if we do not have people that are deep in their faith, that are deep in obedience, that are making disciples, then we have not created anything grand or great. Consumerism and materialism can get their hooks into a church and completely devastate a church spiritually. It creates a spirit of self-reliance, and it adds to the distractions of the mission of the church. It robs us of the mission and the progress in the mission in which we have. Now, this is probably all pretty heavy and I think also hopefully convicting. But the chapter here in chapter 23 of Isaiah, if you go back there, keep your finger in chapter 19 of Matthew. We're going to come back to that too. It ends on a high note. It ends on a high note. Now, history tells us that Tyre and Sodom, both, they were ruined economically. And later, the city of Tyre, it is completely leveled by Alexander the Great. But from this judgment that God brings upon them, it comes good news. 
good things come out of this. Look at verse 18 again, the last verse that we have. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean much probably for you right now, but in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18, it tells us the law says that you cannot give money that has been gained through prostitution to the Lord. So in the verses just before verse 18, Tyre is referred to as a prostitute, and all of these wages, all these earnings, now verse 18 saying she's going to give that to the Lord, but the law is prohibiting that from happening. So what's going on here? Well, it seems to be that Tyre is going to be seen different than they were before. After this destruction, after this judgment from God, they will be different. Now, why? How? Well, if you remember back to chapter 19 in Isaiah, I know it's been a while, but in chapter 19, God says that Egypt and Syria will be equals and co-heirs with Israel. That's shocking. That's offensive, as Isaiah would write that down. Isaiah is giving us a picture of the purifying work of the Lord in a person's life, transforming them, creating something new in them, of what they once were to what they are now. This is what verse 18 is pointing to. This is the shocking news of this chapter, that these places that were consumed with consuming, these people that were so focused on material things, they're going to be different. They're going to think different. They're going to have different desires. So this is shocking news, but it's not impossible news because we have a God who does impossible things. And let me take you back there to chapter 19 of Matthew. Let's look at the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, right? The rest of the story, chapter 19 of Matthew, verse 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, shocked, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So how is it that a people that have been consumed with consuming, or a people who have, have focused all of their life, all of their efforts on material things and, and building up and hoarding up material things, how can they be changed into generous givers as, chapter, as uh, chapter 23 of Isaiah verse 18 tells us they will be? Well, God does impossible things. This is only accomplished by the power of God. He changes the desires of the heart. And we see this in the New Testament. As Jesus goes to this area in Mark chapter 7, and he meets a woman that comes to Jesus in faith, pleading for her daughter. And she demonstrates a great faith in Jesus. And then later in the book of Acts, chapter 21, Paul comes into this region and there's a group of believers that are already there. 
And these people, they're giving aid and they're giving care to Paul. And it's, it, it's, if you read it, it's, it's like this idea of just the selflessness that is there in relation to Paul. This region that had been just enamored with the world and the things of the world is now seeing the Lord is the only one that should be worshipped. These self-worshippers have now become God-worshippers. The destruction that came upon these two places. This destruction that's prophesied here in this chapter, it brought about a humbling of the people. And it humbled them to a place where they saw that the necessary thing in their life was the Lord and the Lord alone. What they needed was a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, the work of God, it may not be understood by us in your lifetime, may not be understood, but we can be rest assured that He only does what is right. He only does what is good. And His ways are higher than ours. His plans, they will always be fulfilled he is the sovereign Lord over history and over the nations, and His purpose for the destruction of the proud, these people that were wealthy, these people of Tyre and Sidon, it produced, it produced people who actually loved Him and worshipped Him. Changing the hearts of some people who had been consumed with consuming to a people who valued their relationship with Jesus above all. Jesus gave Himself. He is our example. He gave Himself for others as a sacrifice to atone for our sin, our sin of rebellion, our sin of idolatry, our sin of hatred toward God. He gave Himself to atone for that. And it is His perfect blood that was necessary. It was needed for you to have a relationship with Him so that your sins would be washed away, cleansed of your offenses against God, and you would be seen as righteous before Him because of the righteousness of Jesus. But you must, you must turn from your sin. You must repent of your sin, and you must trust Him. You cannot just keep pursuing the same things thinking the same things, desiring the same things. There has to be change. And the stuff of this world will one day, it will burn up, it will be no more, and you will stand there with only a handful of ashes before God if you do not have Jesus. You must have Christ. And if you do not have Christ, you have nothing. You have eternally nothing. In this chapter... Here in Isaiah, I think it serves as a warning to us who live in one of the most dangerous spiritual places in the world. And maybe you don't view America that way, but think about it here. It's a place that has the most freedom, the most personal rights. It's a place that has more wealth and materials in the world. It's a place that has more churches and more Bibles per capita than anywhere else. It's a place that has more opportunities to be distracted from God. Christian, you are living in the most comfortable and consumer-driven place in the world. Be on guard. Be on guard. Now, if you've realized something this morning, that you have been drinking the so-called Kool-Aid of the world and you have become materialistic, or you, you definitely are seeing materialistic tendencies in your life, 
let me give you some direction to deal with that. Let me give you four things, and we'll end with this. Four things that I think are helpful for us to fight against the materialism of our world. Number one, giving fights greed. Giving fights greed. One of, the, one of the easiest ways to give is through your local church. If you're a member of this church, that is one of your church covenant obligations to give to this body through not just your finances, but through your, your gifts and your time. So giving fights the greed that so easily comes up in your heart. And maybe you, you have been giving to the church, but also maybe you haven't really evaluated your giving to the church. Maybe, maybe you make quite a bit of money in, in the giving in which you give. It doesn't really affect you or really change your lifestyle at all. And so I would challenge you to, to pray about giving until it hurts. And maybe it's the stuff that you have, the things that you have. And God is maybe calling to you this morning to give of those things until you feel it, until you feel the impact of it. The second thing I, w- I would encourage you to do is audit yourself. So again, like I already said this morning, go to your closet Go to your, your garage, go to your storage building, or whatever else you got, and, and go through that stuff and really examine, like, why, why did I want this? Why do I have this? What, what is the need that I've associated with this that may not really be a need? So audit yourself. The third thing, add accountability into your life. We, we have ways structured for you here to, to try to do this and work this into your life, such as life groups. I would encourage you, if you haven't been in a, in a discipleship relationship, pursue that. Go talk to an elder. Go talk to a fellow church member. Ask them to be part of your life to a level of accountability of how you, how you buy things, interact with things, and, and focus on things that they could maybe call you out of this sin that would afflict you. And number four, release your grip Release your grip on things. Release your grip on this world. Live open-handed before the Lord. Often, often we, we present to God our stuff and we open one hand and we cling to that thing or whatever it is with the other and say, yes, Lord, have all of me except for that. And we hide it from Him. And so I would ask you, in these few moments that I'm going to give you to reflect If you need to open your hand to something to God, do that today. If you need to add accountability to your life, do that today. Audit yourself. Even now, audit yourself. And maybe you need to refocus your giving so that it will fight the greed that is in you. I'm going to give you just a few moments to to pray, to reflect. And again, as always, if you'd like to come to the front and pray, if you want to bring your, your spouse, spouse with you or you want to pray with somebody else, like we invite you to do that as well. You can pray right where you're at, kneel where you're at. But we, we want you to think about your relationship with God and maybe how this materialistic mindset has robbed you really of real satisfaction and joy because it's robbing you of your relationship. So would you spend just a few moments in prayer and reflection, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll sing one final song.